Welcome to Training for Manhood, an ongoing exploration and adventure intended to be fast, fun, and formative for guys who desire to be the best men they can. Young or old, there are always areas for improvement, growth, and maturity. We hope you'll pay attention and put into practice the useful advice you hear on this podcast. But remember, the goal isn't just to listen, but to do what you learn. Welcome to Training for Manhood. Hey, Training for Manhood listeners. We're adding a new component to Training for Manhood as part of our desire to get men to read good books. We're going to be recommending a book each quarter and then reading and discussing that book with a small group of guys. The first book is Wild at Heart by John Eldridge. Go ahead and get the book, read it, and then every Friday morning in the month of August, we'll be releasing a special T4M episode discussing a portion of Wild at Heart. The plan is to read and discuss four books this year. The next one will be The Meaning of Marriage by Tim Keller, and we'll read and discuss that one on the Fridays in October. So for now, get wild at heart and look for those special Friday episodes of Training for Manhood coming every Friday in August. Now back to our regular T4M episode. All right, welcome back to Training for Manhood. This is Dan Panetti. I've got a good friend and a fellow co-worker in the battle, uh, Michael Craven. We've known each other for a long time, um, and uh, I wanted to, to get together to ask him um, about the whole idea of critical thinking and how important that is. Um, but before we get there, Michael, tell us a little bit about who you are, where you come from. We can kind of dive in a little bit to our past. <laughs> well, we do have a long past. We do. Uh, we've known each other now for, gosh, 21 years. We started together. Met in first when, grade. Yeah, met in first grade. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. Um, when you were at the Dallas Association for Decency. And, and you were going through a life transition. Was, yeah. Boy, yep. a big transition yep. from, from CEO to vocational ministry. And uh, I really <laughs> no, enjoyed that pay cut. Yeah. Note to self. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. If I had only known. <laughs> so now here I am 21 years later, and I, uh, I have the great privilege of serving as the vice president for equipping and mobilization at the Colson Center for Christian mm. Worldview. Mm. Which we'll, we'll have to get into. I'll put in the show notes the link to the Colson Center, um, all those things. But it's named after Chuck Colson. Some people, especially as we get to a younger audience, may not know um, the story of Chuck Colson, uh, his transformation from... Uh, kind of White House hatchet man under right. Nixon uh, to a, a life transformation in a man that just loved the Lord, but also had a really special place um, for the idea of worldview and critical thinking and the life of the mind. Yeah. Uh, and, and you know, people, people sometimes miss that concept. He had a great uh, prison fellowship ministry and things like that as well. Um, but tell us a little bit about just maybe the Colson Center, yeah. uh, and then we'll get into the critical thinking component. Well, most people who are familiar with Chuck know about his work in prison ministry. Mm-hmm. Uh, he launched, founded, and launched Prison Fellowship, which remains to this day the largest prison ministry in the world. Yep. Uh, naturally, having been to prison, Chuck had a real heart for people in prison uh, because he really saw the failure of the justice system. Yeah, and wanted so to speaking work of that, was the, the Watergate. He went right. to prison for yeah. Watergate. So some yeah. of the some of the people out there who are a little bit younger, yeah. kind of yeah. like what he did. What he did. What? Yeah. So yeah. under Nixon, Watergate. We're, you know, yeah. we're, we're going back a ways. But yes. Yeah. Of course, this was prior to his conversion. Yes. So, um, you know, he was, as you say, uh, Nixon's hatchet man. He was a vicious political operative. Former in Marine. D.C. Former right? Marine. He was, yeah. He was feared Brutal. in D.C. Yeah. The, um, the quote I remember somebody saying about him is if his grandmother were in the way, 
he would run her over to get to whatever he needed to accomplish. Yeah, so just yeah, picture yeah. that in your mind. Yeah, that that used to be Chuck Colson. So now take yeah. that, convert him into Christianity, yeah. right? And he didn't lose any of that tenaciousness. It just was now directed towards a greater purpose and goal. Yeah, and tempered. And uh, mm-hmm. the Lord just captured his heart and transformed his life. Uh, he was a man that just loved Jesus mm-hmm. with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved others. And demonstrated that over and over and again. But Mm -hmm. while he was working in prison, he began to realize that so many of the men that he was dealing with were in prison because they had made choices, and those choices were formed by the cultures in which they lived or the worldview that animated their lives. And their worldview was fundamentally flawed. It did not correspond with reality and the truth. And, and if, it, it resulted in them being at a place yeah. that if you followed the decisions that they made and just went, here's, here's where you're going to end up, you could go back to a young person and say, because you believe these things and you're going to then act on what you believe, I can tell you where you're going to end up. Yeah. And that was one of the frustrations I know that he had is, why do we wait until a person gets into prison? Yeah. <laughs> why can't we back this up yeah. and help people to think correctly and understand that their worldviews, what they believe to be true, yeah. are going to result in right a life that's going to be damaged and ruined? Well, it's like the philosopher once said, you cannot go against the grain of the universe exactly. and not get splinters. Yes. And these men were full of splinters. Yes. And sadly, he also began to recognize that many in the church were full of splinters mm. because they, too, did not possess a coherent, comprehensive Christian worldview. In other words, a, 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 an accurate, true, comprehensive interpretation of all of reality right. through the lens of Scripture, from the eyes of the Creator who made all things, uh, that he has established creational norms. And every time we violate those norms, we're going to get splinters. Yeah. There's going to be a consequence. Yeah. 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 So he created, well, I guess he created the Colson Center. It's named after him. Yeah. So out of, out of his work in prison, he really recognized the need to especially help Christians develop a coherent worldview. Mm-hmm. So the Colson Center for Christian Worldview was born right. uh, about 30 years ago as part of Prison Fellowship. Seven years ago, we spun off of Prison Fellowship. They remain very much a sister organization, sure. a parent organization, if you will, um, and 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 very close allies in the cultural battle. Mm-hmm. But uh, the Colson Center for Christian Worldview is now an independent organization and has been for some time. Right. And what is your particular role there? So one of our um, our premier program. We have a multitude of programs that seek to educate, train Christians in public theology, worldview. Um, the principal or premier program of the Colson Center that uh, that does that is the Colson Fellows Program, mm-hmm. which is a year-long deep dive into worldview and public theology, really understanding what the scriptures say about God, his world, and our relationship to both. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think this is probably one of the great deficits that the church—well, I don't think I know this is one of the great deficits that is that is plaguing the church today—is we do not have a coherent public theology anymore. We have a very privatized theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've reduced um, our relationship to God to nothing more than our personal salvation. And it is really captured in the phrase, I invited Jesus into my life. Mm-hmm. Now, I understand the sentiment of that, that that our salvation is deeply, profoundly personal, 
but it was never intended to remain private. The better description is Jesus is inviting us into his life, his purpose, his plans. And that's a more apt and accurate description of, of the gospel and salvation. And these two things are not the same thing. One, the gospel makes salvation possible. Uh, but they are two separate things. We've sort of combined them, and as a result, we've reduced our whole conceptions of the Christian faith to this very personal category of salvation and, and nothing more. And reduced it kind of to a moment, right? Right. So I, you know, I was saved when I was seven, right? And that that then is the not only the height, but the breadth of my spiritual life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, give me, give me your testimony. I was saved when I was seven. Right. Um, I'm now, you know, almost 53 and it's like, okay, so anything else you want to talk about? Yeah. Nope. I was saved when I was seven. So, yeah. so if people are listening and they're thinking though about, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Um, but that's going to put me then in a difficult situation because, um, are you talking about the idea that I'm going to take what I believe and I'm going to impose that's the word I chose. I'm going to impose my beliefs on other people because if you're talking about a public theology, right, and I engage the culture with what I believe to be true, right, what happens when people disagree with me, right? I, I don't want to judge other people for, yeah. for being uh, disagreeable with me or, di- you know, they disagree with me. I don't want to impose my beliefs. I mean, you know, we just, the Dobbs decision just happened that overturned Roe versus Wade. And I've had so many people, trust me, so many people in the conversations, right? It's like, well, I don't want to impose my beliefs about, I'm pro-life personally, but I don't want to impose my beliefs on other people. And so what would you say to that person, right, who, who is struggling with the idea of what mm. you're asking them to have a public theology, right? As I take it out into the world, it's going to push back on where other people are. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, and uh, I would begin by with with just the simple reminder of the twofold duty that God has given to men: mm-hmm. um, love God and love others. Mm-hmm. And I would argue, right? yeah, so let, let's start there. Let's start love there. God, love others. Mm-hmm. Is it possible to exercise love toward others while allowing them to be harmed, destroyed by ideas? that are destructive and and counter to God's truth, undermine God's creational norms, the way God has established creation to function and be ordered. And if you think about everything that is unfolding in the culture today, where what where is the attention focused, if not on undermining all of God's creational norms, whether it be marriage, gender, sexuality, Whatever it is, it's all about God says these things are to be one way. Right. The world says no, they are to be another. Yes. C.S. C- Lewis would say no, that you have a responsibility yeah. to step in if you know something to be true, yeah. to step in and to help a person avoid being hurt by their particular belief system, by yeah. their particular actions. Lewis yeah. would say you have a responsibility. You, well, you can't stand by on the sidelines, watch things, and say, you know what, I know that's going to hurt that person, but I'm going to allow it to happen. Right. Well, if, if you know, to use the analogy, if somebody were heading toward the edge of a cliff, exactly. would it be an imposition of your ideas, your values, your beliefs to tackle them? To stop them, yes. to maybe, do everything in your power. Maybe the law of gravity <laughs> won't work in this one particular right. case. I'm going to see right. what happens. Oh, wait, it did. Yeah. No, you know that it's yeah. right. Something as bad is going to happen. And so, yeah. right, imposing your views and values, right, is a negative way of looking at the responsibility that you have to speak truth. Now, it doesn't mean that a person has to accept it. They don't have to believe it, and they don't have to live by it. 
right? So that's, that's a difference between imposing. Um, you know, we, we can't walk into a culture and say this is right, good, and true right. um, and make you believe it and make you live by it. Um, but we can walk into a culture and say this is right, good, and true. Right. <laughs> and here are the consequences right. for not living by it. We, we, can, we can commend the truth mm-hmm. and we can demonstrate the truth. Yes. And we can, we can plead with people in an effort to persuade him, them to follow that truth yeah. because we are commanded to love God and love others. Yeah. And the cool thing is we actually live in a governmental system, right, that our, our personal responsibility can become public morality because we can go to a ballot box and we can vote and we can put people in office and we can express that and so can other people. Yeah. So that, that, that's where your privatization, right, as it becomes public, also then becomes a public policy. That's yeah. part of what we get to do in this country. Some other people in other places don't get to do that. Well, we do. don't, don't you think that so much of this is really um, a result of our um, failed conceptions of truth, that, that truth is now a private category. You have your truth, I have my truth, whereas historically, truth was something that existed outside and above us, yes. and we could enter into the public square and we could contend for the truth. Yes. We could debate, we could argue, we could reason together. We may not, dis- we may not agree. Mm-hmm. We could disagree on a multitude of things, but we were all seeking to obtain the truth. Yeah. Um, that that sense seems to have dissipated. Yeah, I think by definition, the idea that you have your truth and I have my truth, by definition, that's contradictory. Yeah, right. right. I mean, <laughs> right. If you have a truth and I have a truth, and they are not in relationship to each other, if they are contradictory to to, to each other, right, then one has to be false. Yeah, and the other has to be true. Yeah. Right. Tr- truth. Truth is exclusive in and of itself. Right. So so the reality that people live with your truth, my truth, and you know, those truths are contradicting each other doesn't make any sense. That that's not true. So yeah, we've bought into a lie um that, you know, the the enemy has given us. There, you know, you can have multiple truths. That's not right. That's not, you know, the way things are. So I think you're you're right. That concept um, and as men, we need to take that back and say, no, there is truth. We need to discover what that truth is, and then we need to go stand up, speak it and, and defend it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as parents, you you tend to have a, an intuition that there is truth, yes, and and you want to impart that truth to your children. You enforce that truth, um, you you justify that truth, yeah. you impose that truth. Yeah. Um, why? Because you know that is in the best interest of your children. And some some we're seeing now. So I, I just talked to a, um, a sweet young lady the other day. She has a boy and a girl, and she's pregnant, and she doesn't know if she's going to have a boy or a girl for the third. And I said, well, the great thing would be is to not, not um, assign a gender to that particular child. Wouldn't that be great, right? So you don't have to, you have one boy, one girl, and then one that just gets to figure it out themselves. Don't even name them, yeah. right? Don't give them a name. Don't give them a gender. And the reality is, is some people have actually bought into that, mm. right? That, that that is a reality, that that is, you know, that the child can discover their truth. But that's not truth. Right, you're either going to be a boy or you're going to be a girl. Right, right. Now you may not like whichever one God created you to be, and that's a whole other issue, right? But I, I think you know, in our culture today, and, and one of the things I wanted to talk about is that idea of critical thinking. Like, how do we get to that place where we have allowed people to take something so basic, right, as gender and sexuality, and something, um, you know, that you know, when we were going through the whole COVID thing, and it's like, just follow the science, and it's like, wait a second. We're now into the gender thing, and, and the science is actually pretty clear on this one, right? How, do we, how have we gotten to a place where um, critical thinking is so reduced that we have to allow whatever person's reality 
that they believe we have to allow them to impose their reality on us. How do we push back on that concept from the critical thinking component? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're talking about um, ideologies and philosophies and forms that have their origins beginning in the Enlightenment. Yes, we're prior, going back a long way, I know. <laughs> prior to the Enlightenment. Yeah. And they the have rise just, and triumph of the modern self. Yes. Right? You know, Carl Truman's book takes us back, gives us a whole yeah. college degree if you read it. And, and you're right. This is a much larger it's huge. Right, question, right, that, that it has been happening for hundreds yeah. of years to the point that we are. We, we're not going to just reverse it tomorrow. Yeah. Um, but how do we take back the idea of being able to really think about these things, to ask questions, mm. to push back? Well, this is, this is where I think um, worldview formation is so critical mm. to the church generally at this moment in time because yeah. we find ourselves bombarded by a whole array of silly and ridiculous philosophies. Yeah. And they are philosophies. They are attempts to explain reality. Right. And they're, they're in many cases literally absurd, and yet they are gaining traction. Why is that? Because we've lost the ability to think rationally, and perhaps even more so or worse is that the church has no answer. We're, 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 we're just preaching this sort of escapist doctrine of personal salvation, and we've forgotten the broader aspects of the gospel, the good news of the inbreaking rule and reign of Jesus Christ, yeah. that Christ has come into the world to set right all that sin has set wrong, and he invites us into that redemptive work. We have a purpose. Uh, there, is, there is a reason for which we have been saved and not immediately transported to some heavenly realm. He leaves us here. Yes. He changes us. <laughs> we don't know. We, we sometimes wish he didn't. Yeah. But he does. And yeah. I, I think that's a, that's a great point, right, is um, salvation does make right what has gone wrong in my personal life. Right. right? And that, that is a reality. Yeah. Uh, and if it hasn't happened to you, it needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a person needs to surrender their life to Christ. Um, salvation uh, is something, right, that through the grace of God— um, is something that can happen to you, right? And and that reality, I remember, you know, when you've got the the you know the crazy man, you know, that Jesus comes and he, and he heals, you know, the, the demoniac, um, and it says that you know after Jesus healed him, it said that he was sitting fully clothed, which before he was naked. So I can't wait to get to heaven and say, can I watch that video and see how we went from right crazed luniac who was naked, right, to a man sitting who was fully clothed, and then the line that he says, um, and he was in his right mind. Mm. And so that idea is that Scripture gives you that before coming to Christ, no matter how smart you are, right, it gives you the picture, um, and you said that before, right, these absurd ideas that the world's giving, they don't seem absurd to the world, right? They look absurd to us because we know truth and we know reality, and they don't correspond with either. Yeah. Um, but just that idea of when you come to Christ, right, you are now given, in a sense, the mind of Christ that you have the ability to reason and understand the way things have been created to be. Yeah. Now, it doesn't mean that I always like them to be that way, uh, and that is that sanctification process that we wrestle with that God takes us through. Um, but I think that's a really important concept is um, once a person has been saved, then what do I do? What yeah. am I supposed to do with my life? And what you're saying is, well, you're supposed to develop your mind and help attack the false ideas that have been set up against 
the knowledge, right, of the good news of Jesus Christ. And and what does that look like? Well, it looks different for each person, right? So in your particular field, you may be a doctor, you may be a lawyer, you may be an engineer, you may be whatever you are, and you look at those things and say, okay, what is it in my sphere? What is it in my family? What is it in my area of influence? What is it in my, you know interest in my hobby. I don't even care. Yeah. Where where are those false ideas that I can bring truth to, and how do I begin to do that? Well, you think about um, all of the institutions in American life and culture <laughs> that are infected with this uh, these ideologies, you know, that are commonly referred to as wokeism. Mm-hmm. It begs the question, where where are the Christians? We live in a in a you know pretty Christianized culture, mm-hmm. historically speaking anyway. Uh, you know, roughly 70% of Americans claim to be Christian. They claim to believe in God, believe in Jesus Christ. So it begs the question, where are those Christians in those institutions that are resisting the advance of those ideas? Um, Now, granted, there's a risk to doing that, but that risk does not negate our responsibilities, right? right? Yes. And, And in the abdication of our responsibilities, what has happened? These ideas have advanced. They have vanquished the Christian worldview in governing, shaping, directing, guiding these institutions. Mm. And we wonder why our culture is, is in rapid decline. Yes. It's, it's not because of a secular occupation or overthrow. It is the direct consequence of a Christian evacuation. Thus, we get back to the need for critical thinking. Yes. Christians have got to resume the life of the mind. Romans 12, 1 and 2 tells mm-hmm. us, do, not, do no longer be conformed to the pattern of this world, yep. but be transformed by increased church attendance. <laughs> it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that. By the renewing of our mind, there, yes. is a, there is a profoundly intellectual dimension to being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. Because he says so. And he's given us not only a mind, but upon salvation, he's given us his mind to see the world through his eyes, to understand his purpose, his plans, and our role in that plan. And that's why you, through the Colson Center, actually help people begin to develop, right? And it's actually done through a series of um, readings, right, books, arguments, right, uh, understandings yeah. that you begin to push on people. So if you wanted to, I'm, I'm not going to give away the whole program. Uh, people can go and they can look at it and they can sign up. And I know that it's growing in so many different ways, which is fantastic. But if, if you've got a young person, right, grab a young person and say, I want to develop my ability to reason and to think critically. What would, what would be two or three things that you'd say, start here? Well, I tell you, for me, and you know this, um, what, what really began to turn my life in this direction was somebody gave me Francis Schaeffer's book, How Shall We oh, Then Live? Amen. Love Schaefer. <laughs> and, and what that book did for me is it opened my world up to um, a world I had never seen before, mm. this, this, this rich historic past of, of intellectual philosophical development from the church, from Christians, yep. that thought Christianly about every aspect of life and reality and formed ideas about how life and reality ought to be ordered. Yes. Because when we understand the, the, the true nature of reality, that, that we live in a fallen world, we are disordered people, mm-hmm. and left in our disordered state, we will do what? Disorder the world. Yeah. 
But when God saves us, when Christ comes in and saves us, achieves our our reconciliation with God, we experience then reconciliation with ourselves, with others, and with the rest of creation. We become ordered again, and we begin to reorder the world to the glory of God. And this is what has been lost in in contemporary evangelicalism in particular, Mm -hmm. is, is we sort of have this escapist, salvific, emphasis that that's that's the only goal of Jesus. Yeah. And then we look and this is interesting and then we look down upon the disorder in the world as opposed to right through an empathy right as Christ did right because it you know with like, tears in his right. eyes you know Philippians 2 right I, I came not to you know be served but to serve yeah. right where you know the the god of the universe didn't have to come down and become one of us and so the idea is when when that has been reordered and you begin to understand it, now you have a opportunity and responsibility to then go be part of that reordering. And not in an arrogant way, not no. in a I'm right, you're wrong, but yeah. in a in a service way, a servant leadership, right? This this is how let me show you how to reorder. Let me show you how to reorder your life personally. Fantastic. Let me show you how to reorder your family. Watch me. Let me show you how to reorder business. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm, I'm going to run a business and I'm going to show you how to um, treat people fairly. Right. And pay people what they uh, deserve. Right. And I mean, so you have an opportunity in whatever area you're in to do that and to demonstrate it, not just to tell people to do it. Right. But to show them how to do it. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue that our, our principal witness of the gospel of the kingdom mm-hmm. As Jesus said over and over and again, the gospel of the kingdom, it's the good news of the kingdom. It's an announcement of the inbreaking rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, to whom all authority in heaven on earth has been given. He is ruling and reigning right now. And the best way we bear witness to that is demonstrating to a watching world, this is what life looks like when it is lived under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Repent and enter the kingdom of God. And the repentance of which he speaks, is really repentant of our fundamental sin, which is self-rule. Right. We think we're God. Amen. And he says— That's the problem. No, you're not. <laughs> no, you're not. So Francis Schaeffer wrecked you yeah. uh, in your 30s? I was 29, 29 years, years old. 29 years old. Francis Schaeffer wrecked me a little yeah. bit earlier, and it yeah. was um, it was a, a Christian manifesto. Uh, it was the book I read, and he um, he wrecked me, and it was like, you know, I, I had not seen or heard yeah. um, somebody like that that explained things in a way that I went, yeah. oh, my goodness, that was incredible. Um, but then reading became a huge component, right, of my discipleship-making process for myself um, and that development of critical thinking yeah. was, was being able to see that. The other part of it was learning to ask good questions, right. and I think we've lost that particular skill as well. And, and just how do you how do you take something complex and make it simple? And I think you have to learn to ask good questions so that you can truly understand something and digest yeah. it. And I don't think you truly know something, right, until you can make it simple enough, right, that I can explain it to somebody who has no idea what I'm talking about. I think there's there's so many things that are complicated, and we think we know what we're talking about, but until you can kind of boil it down to into you know a, a gold nugget and walk away with it. That's an important. Well, skill you know, we, that we've we have lost. we have over thirteen hundred students participating in the Colson Fellowship this year, mm-hmm. and one of the overarching themes that comes through continuously from our students is they are desperate for space in which to have conversations, real conversations, real conversations yes. where there is no concern about conflict right. and disagreement. Yep. 
um, and and you know people getting angry. I mean, we we live in some very serious times, mm-hmm. and and the church more so now than ever before in the history of this country needs to really be wrestling hard with what's happening around us yep. and how what is happening around us is imposing itself on the church. Yes. Because we have, a, we have a king to follow, and we need to know how to serve that king and serve that king faithfully, no matter what it costs us. Yeah. So we better be clearing the decks and having real conversations about real stuff that help people live in the real world. I love it. And um, that's, that's the sentiment that we uh, hear all the time. I think it's one of the attractions to the program because we create that space. Mm. Uh, where people can wrestle and disagree, and and there's there's no fear of of oh my gosh we don't want people to have a conflict, mm-hmm. really. Um, meanwhile, the world around us is burning to the ground, yeah. burning to the ground, and we need to be a part. And we, we need, need to, to be engaged. a part of it, yeah, because so, people so, are dying. So if I could walk away with one thing, okay, for for a young man, I want to develop my critical thinking. I see the need in the world, and I want to engage, right? I would say. Um, you, you've given a great book, right? And, you know, Francis Schaeffer book, pick it up, read, read it. Read lots of old books. <laughs> read lots of old books, yeah. Yes. They've been dead 400 years, pick it up. Yeah. Um, read and, and then begin to have those conversations. Find a group of other individuals, um, older, younger, find a group of, of individuals that you can ask questions. What, what, what do you think about this? I read this the other day. Help me understand it and begin to have that dialogue. Yeah. Colson Fellows is a great place to do it. If you can't do it through them, right, I mean, you get involved in a, in a church that allows you to ask questions, that engages these particular issues, that opens up the Bible and teaches you how to see life right through the lens of Scripture and begin to get involved in that particular process. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. I would, I would just encourage people to, um, to really explore deeply the concept of Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. You know, Christianity is the only religion that ever conceived of such a thing. Yeah. Um, other people aren't walking around going, well, here's what our worldview is. Right. Uh, it was Christianity that formulated these questions yep. and answers yep. um, and shaped the world around them such that they they contributed to the most successful civilization the world has ever seen when it comes to human flourishing. Yep. Um, so I, I, I think I would explore those those issues. Worldview, public theology. A good way to understand public theology is if you think of the Bible in chapters— I would argue that today we tend to think of it only in two chapters. We start with the sin problem, the fall, and we end with redemption, Jesus coming, dying on the cross, rising from the dead. And we think that's the totality of the story, but that is not. not. And not to minimize how important that is. Very much. But when it minimizes to that's the totality of the conversation, then it becomes something, right, that Scripture is much larger than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when when you add to that creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Yes. The story, story gets much bigger. much bigger. It's far less about you, and it's much more about the king yeah. and what the king is doing and what the king has, has saved you to do yes. and empowered you to do. And this is, this is the abundant life that Jesus is talking about, Amen. Uh, a life that is rich and purposeful and meaningful and and full of of joy and hope and power. And right now, I, I, I meet a lot of Christians that their joy and their hope is being diminished mm-hmm. because they're they're watching the world around them yeah. and and they don't have a robust understanding of of in the beginning, yeah. God created. 
the heavens and the earth, and he said it was good. Yep. And he's orchestrating all these things out. He's making it right. Yeah. To find, a, to find a hopeless person or a person who's bored with Christianity is a person who doesn't understand the totality of mm. the entire narrative. Yeah. And that's what we have to get ourselves back to. Yeah. So, Amen. Michael, thank you for your time and for the conversation. I hope some guys pick up some of the books we'll put in the show notes. And I hope they, these, these uh, conversations wreck them as much as they have wrecked our lives as well. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Training for Manhood. If you found the conversation to be valuable, make sure to rate us where you listen to podcasts. Also, check out additional content on our website, trainingformanhood.com. That's training, the number four, manhood.com. Until next time, in the words of King David, be strong and show yourself a man.